Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Well, let's listen now to God's voice beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And just initially here, we want to consider verse 18, though with God's help, we we hope to be moving on to a few of the subsequent verses here. Uh, But verse 18, after Paul has outlined and explained, at least in, in summary form, the righteousness of God by which he saves unrighteous sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's outlined that. Now he contrasts it, he says, verse 18, for the wrath of God. So he's talked about the righteousness of God, now it's the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So why do we need the righteousness of God? Because of the unrighteousness of men. And we said the word men refers to all men. All human beings, anthropos, all mankind. So here's, here's why we need the righteousness that Paul is proclaiming. Because the wrath of God exists against the unrighteousness of men. Therefore, we need Jesus Christ to atone for and appease and propitiate, is a technical word, to turn away the wrath of God 
and give us the righteousness of God so that we can be acceptable in the sight of a holy and just God who hates and punishes sin. Now in verse 18, he's beginning this section where he unfolds the unrighteousness of mankind, first dealing with the Gentile world throughout the remainder of this chapter, and then arguably, arguably throughout at least a a few verses in the next chapter, but eventually he switches over to the Jewish world and he shows that the Gentiles are ungodly and unrighteous and the Jews are hypocritical and ungodly and unrighteous. And so Jew and Gentile, every single person conceived and born in this world, whoever you are, you need the righteousness of God because you're ungodly and unrighteous and the wrath of God abides against you. So that's why you need Jesus. Now, he describes sinful, ungodly, unrighteous humanity in the tail end of verse 18. He says something about humanity. And as I said, we can really think of this in particular of the Gentile world. So he's speaking of the predominant character of the nations of the world outside of Israel. He says that this ungodly, unrighteous humanity suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who suppresses the truth? Men, mankind, humanity by nature. They suppress it. The word suppress here means to hold down or to restrain. And that word has been compared or or, uh, illustrated. If you think of a child in the pool with a beach ball holding the beach ball under the water. Of course, the beach ball has air in it, so it's, it's buoyant. It's wanting to eventually, at some point, maybe pop out of the pool uh, with all the force that had been used to hold it down. But it's suppressed. It's held down. It's restrained. And what is being held down? What is being forcibly drowned underneath the water? The truth. Now here we're not to understand the word truth as comprehending all that God has revealed, but specifically in context, what may be known of God through natural revelation, through general revelation, through God's revealing of His own existence and something of His character and attributes through creation, through conscience, through the natural world, but not including the Scriptures. We're not dealing with special revelation. We're not talking about the truth of the Gospel. Although the Bible reiterates many aspects of natural or general revelation, uh, it gives us something more. It tells us about the fact that God, personally speaking, is a trinity that there are three persons in the Godhead. You wouldn't get that from natural revelation. It tells us of God's plan of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. You wouldn't get that through natural revelation. But nevertheless, what is revealed in natural revelation, that there is a transcendent Creator who is good and wise and powerful and sovereign and to whom we are morally accountable, those things are true. And that's what the ungodly pagan world is holding down and suppressing. They're suppressing the truth of God's existence and His attributes. And they're doing it in unrighteousness. So we're not dealing here with mere ignorance. The problem here for the pagan world, and again, he's focusing on the pagan world because it's something of a control group. They haven't received a Bible. They don't have the written law of God. They don't have the written word of God. They're unchurched pagans, if you will. They're unsynagogued. They, they don't have any exposure to the covenant community of faith. And so he's looking at man in his natural condition without any exposure to special revelation. That's why he's focusing first on the Gentiles. And he's saying that man by nature, and you and I, had we not been born and come into the context of God's covenant and of His Word and of His saving grace... If we were just taken by nature, this would have been our response by nature to these limited truths of God's existence and attributes. We would have suppressed them not purely in an intellectual way, not because we lack the intellectual gifts 
there are many intellectually sound people who are not Christians. Even people throughout history, Greek philosophers who had great knowledge of the world, of logic, of reason, who, who knew many things and who could uh, argue us all under the table on various points of philosophical truth. Uh, they were not incapable intellectually of understanding the truth of God's existence and attributes. It wasn't primarily an intellectual problem. It wasn't primarily a philosophical problem. It was primarily a moral problem. And so is unbelief today. Unbelief today, as it was throughout the ages in the pagan Gentile world, is primarily a moral problem. And if we think of the human soul, what we're really saying is that it's primarily a problem of the will. God has given us a mind to identify truth, to to seek out and make conclusions concerning what is true. God has given us a will to seek and desire what is good. That's a distinction in terms of these two faculties of the soul. The mind is concerned with what is true. The will is concerned with what is good. And the problem for the unchurched pagan in this passage is not primarily that that their mind, of course sin has its effect on the intellect, but it's not as though by nature their mind is so corrupted that they can't put one foot in front of the other intellectually. No, The truth of God's existence and attributes is readily available to them. The creation is screaming the reality of God's existence and of His character. So it's not merely intellectual or philosophical. The problem is moral. Their their concept of what is good and desirable has been turned upside down so that rather than desiring the God who is revealed in creation rather than having a magnetic attraction to their Creator, rather than being amazed and mesmerized and drawn in to want to know more, rather than understanding His righteous and holy character and being drawn to obedience, instead, they have a visceral reaction. They have a, they're repulsed by the God who is revealed in this created world and in their conscience. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you can see that Paul is emphasizing this fact at the beginning of this passage and at the end. So as we'll see, Paul lays out five different stages. I mean, I've divided it that way. It's like the verse divisions. They're not inspired. But I think we can identify five stages of spiritual decline of moral and cultural decline among the unchurched pagan nations. And he does that through the remainder of this chapter. And we said in the past that there's ingratitude, which we'll look at today, idolatry, immorality, perversion, and chaos. And there are these five stages of decline. But notice how, in some sense, they're bookended with this recognition of the suppression of the truth. You have verse 18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. And then it describes the chaos, stage 5. So before he gets to stage 1, around the time he gets to stage 1, and around the time he gets to stage 5, he's emphasizing that this is primarily an issue of the will. They take pleasure in unrighteousness. They have the knowledge of God, but they don't like to retain it. It's amazing that, that word like. And we see it on social media. You know, people like this post and they don't like that post. Uh, it, it's just speaking of your personal preference. They've received the testimony and the witness from Psalm 19, as it's described there, of all creation. That God exists and He's like this and He's like that and and we see His attributes in the created world. They've received that knowledge, but they don't like it. They don't like it. Unlike. They don't like it. They don't want to retain it. 
They want to get rid of it. They want to find any way possible. And that's why they use so much energy either intellectually to somehow reason their way through some sophistical sleight of hand, reason their way around and away from God. They don't want to retain that knowledge. They want to get away from it. So they'll use their intellectual gifts. They'll enlist those intellectual gifts against God and against the knowledge of God to get rid of that knowledge because they don't want to retain it. Or they'll seek pleasure in worldly things and and they'll just become so intoxicated with the, the pleasures and treasures of this world so they get God out of their mind so that they can focus on the things of this world to distract them from the knowledge of God. They don't want to think about the final judgment. They don't want to think about their accountability to the God who made them. And the fact that they can't walk outside or inside without seeing clear testimony to His existence and His attributes. They don't like that. They don't like to retain that. And so, they suppress it in unrighteousness. By the way, this can happen even to religious people who are exposed to the Bible. In fact, Paul uses this same language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, where the, the heading, at least in the Pew Bible, which also happens to be my pulpit Bible, is the great apostasy, and rightly so. It's describing the great apostasy from the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who sits as God in the temple of God that is in the church, receiving divine honor and worship. He's the son of perdition, which is the term used of Judas Iscariot, who was a religious leader, who used his authority to usurp and oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see this historical figure raised up from Uh, The early days, it was already in the works, manifesting itself at an early stage, even uh, in in seed form in the days of the apostles, and in some sense will continue till the Lord returns. A historical figure sitting in the church on a throne claiming to have divine attributes. I wonder who that could be. But in any event, we're told here that concerning this mystery of lawlessness, this apostasy from the gospel of Jesus Christ... We're told in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. So you could say, well, Satan's blinding them. It's not their fault. This is an intellectual problem that causes people to reject the truth of the gospel and of salvation. No, no. They're sitting ducks for Satan's blinding and deceptive tactics because we know elsewhere that he blinds the minds of those who don't believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He blinds the minds of people that haven't believed in the first place. Why haven't they believed? Because with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. They didn't love it. They didn't want some more of it. They rejected it. They may have professed it, but they didn't like it. They didn't embrace it. They held their nose for some reason or another because of their religious... uh, Who knows? There are many ulterior motives that cause people to profess the truth, but they don't love it. So they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned. In other words, they're without excuse. Who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you compare these verses with our verses in Romans 1, 18 and following, you'll see Paul is using virtually the same concepts, the same vocabulary. The unchurched pagan suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and the, the religious professing Christian who's duped into a false gospel and a false church because they didn't love the truth of the gospel and they didn't believe the truth. Why? Because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They suppressed it in unrighteousness. They sought to violently drown it. Uh, 
until it was lifeless floating in the water. And here Paul describes for us the first stage of this rebellion against God's revelation. He says, what we're going to do here is take the first stage of ingratitude. And you can see this in verse 19 and through the first half of verse 21. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And now here, verse 21, midway through. This is the verse we're going to focus on the remainder of our time this morning. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. That's a very pithy summary of this first stage of rebellion against God's revelation. This initial stage of ingratitude. They knew God, but they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. So first, they knew God. They knew God. Now, Paul in Acts 17 is evangelizing the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, and he says, I know that you're very religious, and some translations say superstitious. It's hard to know whether he's using that as a compliment or as a jab. But either way, he knows they're very religious, and they have an altar to the unknown God. And so what Paul says is that in your pagan religion, you've had some recognition of the God that I'm proclaiming to you, says Paul. There's some recognition of Him, and yet, to you, He's an unknown God. So let's keep in mind that they had the altar, so they knew that there was this God that went beyond the limited, finite pagan deities of Greek culture. They knew there was someone or something else beyond. They knew there was this transcendent God But in many respects, he was an unknown God. They didn't know him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't know him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who would send the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They didn't know him in those terms. He was unknown, and yet they knew him. And Paul is saying they knew him, not personally, persons of the Trinity, not savingly, as if they had saving faith in the promise of the gospel, but intellectually and intuitively, they knew God. They knew that there was a sovereign, supernatural, transcendent creator. They knew, in other words, that God is, and they knew to a certain extent what God is. And that's what Paul is saying here, verse 19 What may be known of God, not everything, but speaking of natural revelation, what may be known of God is manifest to them. Paul repeatedly uses this language. He wants to be crystal clear that everyone by nature has a sense of God's existence. We can debate exactly what that is. You probably need somebody a lot smarter than me to figure that out. But they know. It's manifest in them. Now that could be speaking of the testimony of their conscience in individuals, or it could be translated among them, as in among them collectively, that there's this general tendency among them such that it wouldn't necessarily be the inner witness of the conscience. Maybe it's the witness of creation among them in general. But either way, it's manifest. For God has shown it to them crystal clear. They know. How do they know? God Himself has shown it to them. God Himself, through the testimony of conscience and creation, is making certain that the testimony... He has not, as Paul says, left Himself without a witness. He's making sure that that witness is being manifested, is being shown to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Clearly seen. There is no inadequacy in natural revelation to reveal the existence and attributes of God. 
It's clearly seen. God shows it to them. He manifests it to them. It's obvious. Being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So you can't plead ignorance. You can plead ignorance of the Gospel on Judgment Day. The problem is, you'll be sent to hell not for rejecting the Gospel. That's just one of many sins. It's the wages of sin. All sin. The sins you've committed against natural revelation. The sins you've committed against the knowledge of the Creator. Even if you've never picked up a Bible, never heard the Gospel, you've still sinned and the wages of sin is death. You've still sinned against the sovereign Creator who put the work of His law, Romans 2.14, on your heart and you've rebelled against that conscience that He gave you. So there's no excuse. Now, I've been saying you, but the fact is, none of you here fall into this category. To whom much is given, much is required. For you, you're not just accountable to the, the revelation that God makes through the birds and the trees. And No, you're accountable for the truth of this book. You say, I've never read the Bible. Right, but it's available to you, and you should. If you have a final exam in a college class, and the professor has given you the textbook... You can't say at the final exam, well, I never read the textbook, so I'm not, I'm not accountable to regurgitate the information on the exam. Sorry, that's not going to work. He gave you the textbook, so you need to read it. And you're accountable for what you should have read, not what you did read. So God has given us His Word. He's given us His Gospel. He's given us in this culture countless resources to understand and study and make sense of this Word. He's given us the church. He's given us preachers and teachers. He's given us countless things. Children, He's given you a father and a mother to teach you the Bible. We have so many advantages beyond the people described here. And so if they're without excuse, how much more are we without excuse? if we do not read and believe and obey the Bible? How much more are we going to be without excuse? On Judgment Day, my friends, these people that Paul is describing here will rise up on the Judgment Day to condemn us. Because, okay, they didn't understand the sun rising and setting and they didn't understand the significance of the atmosphere and the sun, moon, and stars, and they didn't pay attention to that little voice in their conscience. My friends, if we stand before God on Judgment Day and we are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will have done it in open rebellion against the clearest revelation that God has ever made. God, in speaking to us in the Bible, has revealed to us the truth. He's revealed what may be known of Him. He's revealed it. He has shown it to us. He's shown it to you. And it's clearly seen. It's understood. It's understandable. You're without excuse. If you know God in that way and have access to His knowledge and you don't pursue it and you don't seek first His kingdom. What's interesting here, just as a side comment, that Paul tells us that since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now that tells us that since the creation of the world, the world includes everything, so since the very inception of creation when God said, let there be light, and the six days of creation that followed, since that creation of the world in six days, since that time, the invisible attributes of God have been clearly seen. And they've been understood by the things that are made. And then he goes on to describe the things that are made that he's talking about that are understanding these things and clearly seeing them. And he identifies them as these pagan nations who are without excuse. So what he's saying is that from the creation of the world, there have been human beings who have clearly seen and understood God's existence and attributes through the, through the testimony of creation. Now, there are people in the Christian church who try to tell us that we should believe in an old earth, that the earth isn't roughly six, seven, however many thousand years old following the explicit teaching of Scripture, but rather 
The earth is millions of years old and God made the world. And then there was this gap of time or who knows how they reinterpret Genesis 1, but there's millions of years and then Adam and Eve, at best, Adam and Eve come on the scene. Well, that doesn't seem to square with what Paul says here because he's saying that from the creation of the world, this witness of God's existence and attributes was clearly seen and understood by human beings. Therefore, human beings date the whole way back to the beginning, to the creation of the world. That fits if you have mankind created on the sixth day, right back at the beginning, so that mankind has been in existence perceiving this witness from the creation of the world. But not if you say, oh, the world was created, and then Adam and Eve came along millions and bazillions of years later. Sorry, friends, that doesn't fit. God made the world and man was in it from the very beginning perceiving God's attributes and God's existence. Uh, And this is just one of many examples of why we need to reject an old earth. There's simply no place for it in the Scriptures according to what Paul says here. Now, Paul says that they knew God. And that tells us that and we don't, you know, we could learn this just from doing some historical and uh, anthropological research, but belief in God, religious profession, religious worship of some kind is universal throughout the world. Every single culture, every place you go, there is some concept of a transcendent being, an object of worship. We're not saying that these are orthodox conceptions of God or that they they fully understood. Obviously, we're going to see how that knowledge has been corrupted. But the fact is that theism or belief in God or polytheism, deism, whatever it is, there is a universal belief in some concept of God. Now, that doesn't save anybody. And we repudiate all the false and idolatrous conceptions of God. But there is a universal sense of God's existence manifested in a variety of ways. Atheism is unnatural. We could use the analogy here that uh, heterosexual immorality is a natural lust. It's a corruption of God's created order and of natural revelation, it's a corruption, it's a sin, but it's taking something natural and then corrupting it to a certain degree. It's a natural lust. But homosexual behavior is an unnatural lust. It goes beyond the mere natural lust of heterosexual uh, sinful sexual behavior, and it, it just turns it on its head, a complete perversion, an unnatural lust. In the same way, idolatry, polytheism, deism, all of these false religions, um, this, is, this is a corruption of man's natural knowledge of God. Atheism is an utter perversion. Atheism is utterly unnatural. In fact, if you look at the history of atheism, for the most part, it is the result of Christianity. Atheism, and I don't mean it in the sense that Nietzsche said that... Uh, you know, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who profess Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That may be the case. But the fact is that atheism is primarily a post-Christian phenomenon. Why are people who reject the Bible today gravitating more than ever before toward atheism? Why is it that atheism has arisen in a post-enlightenment context, or even from an enlightenment context, when people began to question the truth of the Bible? Why is it that atheism was the option, or agnosticism, or secularism, and they didn't go to any of the other religions? Why didn't they pivot uh, to Islam, or Judaism, or something like that? No. When they rejected Christianity, they essentially rejected any meaningful form of religious truth at all. Why is that? Well, it's because Christianity refuted all the other ones. Christianity is the supreme expression of religious truth. Christianity is the most consistent and is a fully consistent articulation of God, of the concept of God, 
of the concept of God's law, His grace, His mercy, His attributes. Christianity is the pinnacle. It refuted the other one so that when you reject Christianity, where are you going to go? To reject Christianity is essentially to say, I reject all religion. Now you, you see some people, they become Buddhists, but that's a cop-out. Buddhism is, is essentially, in many ways, a form of atheism. There's no uh, personal God, no personal moral accountability. But when you reject Christianity, you're stuck with atheism. You're stuck with agnosticism. You're stuck with saying either there is no God and we should just be secular and humanistic. You're stuck with the idea, well, maybe I don't know if there's a God or not, so I'll just be an agnostic and there's no way to know anything. My friends, atheism and agnosticism are a complement to the Christian faith. What they're saying is, uh, if Christianity and the Bible are false, then you can't know anything religiously. If the God of the Bible isn't true, then there is no God. If the propositional assertions of the Bible are false and the inerrancy of Scripture is bogus, then we can't know anything absolutely. There are no moral or intellectual absolutes. That's a compliment. It actually does the work of the apologist for him. You don't have to, essentially, you don't really have to do a lot of apologetics because they've already admitted without Christianity, there's no God and there's no truth serves to confirm the Christian worldview, if if nothing else. But we're told here that through the created world, we perceive God's eternal power and Godhead. Now, I'm not going to reiterate for you all the different classical arguments for God's existence. But what I am going to do is just describe some of these arguments, not in the sense of, this sort of apologetic treatise and logical refutation of atheism, but rather because a lot of these classical arguments for God's existence, they actually summarize some basic common sense observations that most people have. Not a formal logical argument, but just an observation, just an obvious point of common sense. So first of all, you have causation. Causation. The universe is not eternal. We know the universe is not eternal um, because it changes from day to day. And if it was eternal, eternal means timeless. So there are distinctions of time. There's progress. There's sequence in the world. You could say, well, the world has, the universe has always existed. Okay, well then, everything up to 1922 was infinite. And everything up to 2022 was infinite. And everything up to 500 B.C. was infinite. Now, an infinite period of time is equivalent to an infinite period of time. So there's no time distinction between 500 B.C., 1922 A.D., 2022. There's no distinction because the the universe has always been here. So everything up to any point in time is infinity, which is equivalent to the time leading up to any point in history. Now, my, my simple point here is that we know, even without that obvious argument, we know that the universe has not always been here because it's in a process of time and change. Even, even in terms of the scientists today, they're telling us the universe had a beginning, there was a big bang and so on, and eventually through entropy the universe will just run out and dissipate. But the fact is, It had to start somewhere, somehow. Now, the cause of the natural world, the natural universe, can't be natural, can't be part of nature. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the cause, it can't be the cause of itself, because it would have had to be there before it existed to cause itself. So the fact of causation means we know the universe, the natural world, had a beginning. It had to be caused by someone or something that is supernatural or transcending over nature. Time itself and the the, the series of sequences in history, time itself had a cause. It had a beginning. So that beginning had to be timeless. Time had to be caused by something that's outside of time. Nature had to be caused by something that is supernatural. So at a basic level, we all know that the universe has a supernatural, timeless cause. Think of design. 
We look around us at the artistry of creation, even atheists and evolutionists, when they describe the world around us, they cannot help but speak of design and purpose. Even the uh, uh, geneticists are now speaking of DNA as genetic code. It's a code of information, which some scientists are getting to the point where they see the contradiction, and now they're coming up with theories that our, our planet was or even our universe was created in a simulation by aliens, or that aliens designed our DNA and seeded the planet with it, and so on and so forth. But then where did the aliens come from? The, the fact is, it's nonsense. We all know that this world bears the marks of intelligent design. If our DNA is coded information, why don't you just come out and say that and be honest and say, we don't know where it came from. That contradicts our account of the origin of the universe. There's coded information. There's intelligent design. But no, if somebody says that, they get fired from academia. But we all know that there's design, that this world was intelligently engineered and there's functional utility from the human body to the world around us, the ecosystems, there's design. And that, just at an intuitive level, causes us to see that there is a wise and powerful creator. The world also can be seen to point to God in in this sense, that uh, what is imperfect in the world gives an indication to us that there is some perfect counterpart to it. So, we see love in the world. We identify it. We believe in it. We understand it. We, see, we, we, we appreciate love. We see power. We see wisdom. We see justice. We see righteousness. We see goodness. And we see these things in an imperfect form that causes us to desire the genuine article, the real thing. The, 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 the pure expression, the boundless expression of these things. We know there was a cause. We know He wisely designed these things. And we see certain aspects, love, power, wisdom, certain attributes manifested in this world that are imperfect. And whoever created them has to have had some concept of them. And we can see a testimony in these imperfect things to the perfection That's what God's attributes are often called, His perfections. And that refers specifically to those types of attributes. He is most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious. The communicable attributes that are seen in humanity, that are seen in this world, in imperfect form, are reflections of God's perfection. That this supernatural, timeless, infinite Creator Uh, created these things in seed form to certain degrees uh, to reflect His own character as most loving, most powerful, most wise, most just, most righteous, most generous. We also see God revealed epistemologically or in terms of our understanding of what is true. We all believe in truth. Somebody tells a lie about us, you can prove it pretty quickly. That's not true. You believe in truth. You believe that there is some standard by which you can prove that the person lied about you and that you're actually the one telling the truth. We know that by nature. Now, what's the basis of that? What's the basis of the distinction between truth and error? What is the absolute standard of truth? We all know that certain things are are right and certain things are wrong. Again, if somebody steals your bologna sandwich, children, at school or on a picnic, somebody steals your sandwich, hey, that's mine. You can't do that. We all know that. Nobody had to teach us. Creation and conscience are screaming it in our ears. We know certain things are right, certain things are wrong. What's the basis of right and wrong by which you can point out the sin of the person who stole your bologna sandwich? Again, The God who caused, the God who designed, the God who is perfect in all His ways. We have a sense in our conscience that it it must be God. There must be a God of truth who has created us to seek what is true and to seek what is good. He's put that in us, therefore He has the standard. He is the standard. We see it in providence as well. 
You look at history, you see a narrative, you see a story, you see a series of unfolding events that have meaning. And you can read history and you read atheistic, secular, Marxist historians, and they always have a narrative and there's a moral to the story. Well, if there's no God, how can there be meaning? How can there be a moral to the story? They're presupposing that there is a sovereign personal God who is ordaining these things and that our universe is not just blind entropy running out of steam and eventually it will cease to exist. No, there's meaning to history. That points to the God who ordained it meaningfully. And also there is the sense of future judgment. Paul says at the end of our chapter that people know the righteous judgment of God, that those who sin deserve death. We all have that sense of rewards and punishments and throughout virtually every society in human history, there's some concept of rewards and punishments beyond this life. The reason our culture is rejecting that is because Christianity has pretty much cleared the room of all other religious options and so the only real option left is to be accountable to the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, or to reject all future rewards and punishments. And, and, and we're going to take the second pill and tell them what they've won, Johnny. Look at what our society has become. People, mass shootings. No sense of accountability. I'm going to shoot up the mall or the kindergarten and then I'm going to kill myself because there's no future rewards or punishments. What does it matter? Look at what we've created by rejecting the Bible. We're without excuse and, and the pagans were as well. Now, here we're, we're told, and, and we're going to come back to this next week, that there are two ways in which these unchurched pagans manifested their suppression of the truth. They did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. They didn't glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. And we've characterized this entire phase or stage as ingratitude. Why? Because these unchurched pagans, by not glorifying God, were not simply like the demons refusing to glorify the God who made them and who will send them to hell and so on. They had a, you know, the demons have a duty to glorify God, period, because He made them. It's not only that, it's not merely that, that the pagans are are simply failing to glorify God who's going to send them to hell. They're failing to glorify the God who has been their benefactor. They're failing to glorify the God who has blessed them in countless ways, who has not left himself without a witness, but has given them rain and sunshine who has been good and generous to the thankful and the unthankful. By not glorifying God as God, that in itself is unthankful if God has been good to you. If God has given you any ounce of goodness and pleasure in this life, even temporarily on planet earth, even temporally as we say, then to not glorify Him as God is an act of unthankfulness. People have a duty to be kind to their neighbor. And so if somebody walks down the street and punches you in the face, okay, they've sinned against you. But if you hand them a $100 bill and then they punch you in the face, the emphasis of your moral outrage will not simply miss a lock on the fact you shouldn't punch people, but it's going to say, well, I just gave you $100, are you kidding me? You know, the, the guy has the cardboard sign. You give him $100 and, and he pulls a, a crowbar out of his back pocket and smashes your window of your car. You know, you're going to be focused on, I just gave you the $100. You see, failing to glorify God is heightened, is heightened by all the good things that he has given to us. And so these nations didn't glorify him as God. Yes, but they didn't, the one they didn't glorify was their chief benefactor, the one who is the preserver of man and beast, the one who gave them every good earthly benefit and blessing. And we're going to look at some of these things next time. 
what it means for people who have never had a Bible to glorify God. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? On Judgment Day, pagans who have never received a Bible will be held accountable for not keeping the first half of God's law. The work of God's law, Romans 2.14, is written on their heart. They will be accountable, not for the specifics of Scripture, they will be accountable for, for their duty toward God. And that duty toward God involves glorifying Him. The heavens declare His glory. They've never received a Bible. They don't have any uh, covenantal knowledge of God or anything like that. But they have a duty to respond to the glory of God in creation by ascribing glory to Him. We call these natural acts of creaturely worship. They must recognize Him, that there is a God. They must fear and reverence Him. They must pray to Him. I'm not even going to give the proof text. I'm just throwing that out there because some of you may disagree with that. But this is what all mankind has a duty to do. To recognize God, to fear and reverence Him, to pray to Him, and to obey their conscience and thereby obey God Himself. They didn't do that. And next time we're going to look at that because why? Why is this relevant for us? Do you glorify God? We can debate about the unchurched pagan, but at the end of the day, you're not that. You have this book. You have the truth, the oracles of God. And you need to recognize God in response. You need to fear and reverence Him. You need to call upon His name in prayer. You need to believe and obey His truth. For we are without excuse all the more if we receive the knowledge of the truth of Scripture and we know it like the back of our hand, but we don't respond by glorifying God as God on the throne and thereby manifest our ingratitude. My friends, let's think about that. We'll come back to it next time. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You love us. And You have spoken the truth in love. You have revealed to us our sinfulness by nature. That though we have every advantage through natural and for ourselves even special revelation, that we suppress these things, we ignore these things, we put them out of sight and out of mind so that we can take pleasure in unrighteousness. But we do not receive the love of the truth. We pray that by Your Holy Spirit's power, we would humble ourselves with the reality of our total depravity by nature, our sinfulness. And that You would open our eyes by faith to look upon Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. His perfect righteousness that alone can clothe us and make us acceptable in Your sight. Cause us to hunger and thirst after Christ and His righteousness, we pray in His name. Amen.